Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Today, we continue to look at some of the issues influencing the upcoming presidential election and how those issues and the election itself may impact investment strategies. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator, and our guest is Bill O'Grady, Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist. Bill, in our previous discussion, you looked at how certain cultural and political groups coalesce around various issues and how some potential changes and alignments might impact the election this time around. And you wrote in one of your geopolitical reports about an aspect that I had, hadn't really recognized before, and that is, in the recent past, both political parties, both of them, while they may have paid attention to incorporating social beliefs and social grievances into their platforms, both of them have more or less maintained the economic status quo which tends to favor higher income classes. Do I understand this correctly? That is our position. Essentially, the right-wing establishment and left-wing establishment have remarkably similar economic policy positions. They supported deregulation, globalization, and technology disruption. The alignment wasn't without some differences. The left-wing establishment was more hostile to the fossil fuel industry, for example. But in general, the overlap was fairly broad. Let's dig down a little deeper. Is it my perception or is it actually true that wage growth in recent years has failed to keep up with the cost of living overall in this country? That is the broad contour for the bottom 90% of households. There are some economists who argue that if one includes all the social safety net, the situation for lower income households isn't as dire as the income data would suggest. But overall, it is hard to make the case that lower income households have not struggled since the mid-1970s. And neither political party has really addressed this issue head on. Broadly speaking, no, not until 2008. That doesn't mean the issue didn't come up. Pat Buchanan made the case for right-wing populism in the 1990s, which was based on anti-globalism. Ralph Nader made the case for the left-wing populist as the leader of the Green Party in 2000. But the great financial crisis made it an issue because in the wake of it, households have not been able to tap the debt markets to make up for slowing income growth. The first Obama campaign implicitly suggested it would address the issue, but the Trump campaign did it overtly, calling for protection of Social Security against his own party's goal of reform and ran on a platform of deglobalization in all its forms, trade, immigration, and outsourcing. So basically, is income inequality behind the current anti-globalization movement? In our opinion, it is an important element of it. In terms of trade, both the right-wing populace and left-wing populace have become jaded on trade and offshoring. Is income inequality behind the current anti-immigration movement? Yes, but with some nuance. Left-wing populists tend to be sympathetic toward immigration, while right-wing populists are usually consistently against it. Has income inequality reached a critical point where changes are demanded? That is always hard to tell. But there is some history that suggests when the top 10% of households are capturing over 50% of income, that political support for the status quo that led to that imbalance is undermined. Perhaps the economic trigger that drives the change is private sector debt. The combination of non-financial sector and household sector debt has reached a point where it is becoming difficult to sustain. 
And how are these trends playing out today within the political parties? The parties have generally relied on promoting various social policies to attract populist support while maintaining capital-friendly economic policies. The party leadership would prefer to maintain this strategy, but it is becoming difficult to sustain. Still, there has been reluctance to embrace full-scale populist economic policies, and populist insurgent candidates have generally struggled to get nominated. Even President Trump has been a mixed bag for populists. Although they generally cheer his trade and immigration policies, this administration has also cut taxes for upper-income households and has engaged in deregulation, which tends to undermine the populist agenda. And so the parties has been able to fend off the populace so far, but the ability of populace to affect policy is increasing. On the subject of inequality between income classes, does the pandemic deepen divisions and perhaps resentment and lack of trust as well? One of the key data points of the pandemic is that we have seen a spike in wage growth along with the jump in unemployment. We have never seen anything of this magnitude, and only the recession in recent history where we have seen rising wages and rising unemployment was in the 1973-75 recession. That event was mostly due to wage indexing. There were cost of living adjustments that lifted wages even in the midst of layoffs. This event is much different. It reflects the fact that lower paid workers have been bearing the brunt of the job losses. There is no doubt that the divisions were deep before the pandemic and the event has exacerbated these divisions. And where do the current racial protests fit in this trend toward populism and and how significant might they be as an election influencer? At first glance, the current racial protests appear to be based on identity alone. But as commentary expands, economic issues are becoming a bigger part of the discussion. The movement could go a number of different ways. If it remains centered on race, it will likely be opposed by the right-wing populace. But if it expands to include broader economic issues, it could lay the groundwork for what we refer to as a Nader coalition, which is a governing coalition of both right and left-wing populace. Usually, this coalition fails over identity divisions. Social media, um, that's another, certainly another political influencer today. Has it helped or undermined the power of political parties? History shows that media is an agent of change. The Reformation probably needed Gutenberg to occur. Political figures have always used media to promote their campaigns. Newspapers were the primary tool for decades, but Roosevelt changed that situation by using radio effectively during his fireside chats. Television introduced the ad campaign and the televised debate. Social media has become a game changer. It allows a candidate to message the world directly and can facilitate fundraising. Both of these factors undermine the power of political parties. We have seen the rise of unconventional candidates, such as Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump, who can bypass the party to get their message delivered, raise money, and contact supporters. In addition, social media can allow campaigns to micro-target voters, allowing them to tailor messaging which can touch a narrow interest area that may either encourage or discourage voting activity. Social media is huge, and so far the political parties are struggling to remain relevant. Social media has one other very important impact. It dramatically reduces the cost of distributing ideas. It's not that fringe ideas didn't exist in the past, but spreading those ideas with printing and mailing costs made widespread distribution prohibitive. 
Social media has made the cost of distributing ideas that may only have a modest adherence much cheaper and thus facilitates their distribution. Bill, it seems to be true, at least from our current vantage point, but are politics today actually more partisan than in the past? Yes. A couple of researchers named Rosenthal and Poole show that the level of partisan behavior is at levels uh, last seen in the early part of the 20th century. Some studies using extended data suggest this is the most partisan the U.S. has ever been. Some of the problem is that during the Cold War, likely due to the existence of a common enemy, there was a high level of bipartisanship. Media was limited. There were only three for-profit networks, and there were fairness clauses. But the breakdown of the Cold War consensus, the advent of cable media and social media have all developed and pushed voters into partisan camps where they can avoid hearing viewpoints that differ from their own. Can intense partisanship affect how we view the legitimacy of an elected president? Our position is that every president elected in this century has been seen as illegitimate by some element of the opposition. President Bush was tainted by the Florida voting uncertainty. Barack Obama faced questions about his birth. Donald Trump has had to deal with charges that Russia brought about his election. Once a president is seen as illegitimate, the concept of a loyal opposition is lost. The loyal opposition may oppose a leader but views him as legitimate and doesn't need to see or go to great lengths to thwart his agenda. But if a leader is seen as illegitimate, opposition becomes resistance and any means necessary may be deployed to prevent the leader's agenda from being executed. Do you see any potential for a change in these recent trends? It is likely some sort of resolution to the current environment will develop. American history shows that these periods of great dissension are eventually resolved. It can be difficult to see a path to resolution, but we do expect one to occur. Although the timing and configuration is not easy to divine, our best guess is that right-wing populism will become the dominant force in U.S. politics. The economic policy of right-wing populists is to improve the lot of the bottom 90% through restricting labor supply, thus driving up wages. That is usually accomplished by trade and immigration impediments and in the past included racial and gender discrimination as well. Most likely, a successful right-wing populist coalition won't necessarily need racial and gender discrimination at this juncture. And it may take the form of a modified Nader coalition. In his book, Unstoppable, Nader argued for a right-wing, left-wing populist coalition to govern. Italy actually tried it for a while with mixed success. We could see a right-wing populist-led governing coalition that captures support of some elements of the left-wing populist to gain a majority. Bill, finally, how might policies to correct income imbalances impact the value of investment classes? Populism won't be favorable for capital. We still don't know exactly how this will play out, either from a timing or price behavior standpoint, but the adjustment will likely be difficult for financial markets. Thank you, Bill. This has been the Confluence of Ideas, featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. We'll discuss election-related issues impacting investments one more time on our next podcast, including a projection for the outcome of the election. For more resources, we point you to confluenceinvestment.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.